0: Good morning, beloved. Happy Mother's Day. Oh, it's a lot of enthusiasm about that. It's a lot. I do pray that you have a wonderful day, Um, a day full of love and laughter, and just um, have a good time. But it's so good to be together, to worship God together. Um, So this morning, as we start off speaking of just kind of awkward, unenthusiastic intros, Um, You know, sometimes when you're trying to tell a story, like, the best way to to get your audience in, like, I recently heard there's a movie out that lasts three hours, and all I could think was, like, how can you stay in tune with something for that long? (laughs) Like, they need required intermissions or something. But most stories, the way that they kind of get you into the story is they have to somehow appeal to your emotions very quickly. And so this is pretty typical in storytelling that if you cannot connect with the audience and draw them in with some kind of emotional tie, whether that's with something joyful, sorrowful, or whatever, then then you've lost them. Like You don't really stand a chance of kind of getting them to come along with you on the journey you're trying to take. And so you have stories um, where they'll they'll use this kind of appeal to your emotions quickly, and, and that happens really, really effectively when you see someone and your heart is just torn because you've seen them betrayed. When you see someone betrayed or abused, that really kind of draws us in. Like you should have a sense of compassion or sympathy, empathy, and things like that. But it is especially effective when someone is betrayed or abused by someone that they love and should receive love and care from, but instead they're abused. When loyalty should come their way, but instead there's betrayal. There's a breaking of trust and there's abuse that takes place. This is the classic stories like Cinderella, where Cinderella's father passes away and now stepmom turns the tables and suddenly Cinderella is like a slave and her sisters are to be treated like royalty. And so there's all this abuse that comes when stepmom should have stepped in even more at the loss of the father, but instead she abuses her. Or Simba, like... How do you not cry when you watch Simba, as his father dies, and Simba, the lion, you know, and and his Uncle Scar. Uncle Scar should be the one who's saying, like, I've got you, but instead Uncle Scar takes advantage and sends him, exiles him from the kingdom, and, you know, Harry Potter living in that cupboard (laughs) under the stairs. And the Dursleys, like your last remaining relatives, but instead of loving him and caring for him, they abuse him. We all know the pain and the fear of being betrayed by those that we love and are loved by. The notebook. Guys, look, I have no false expectation that you stayed awake for it, but after the ninth time that she made you watch it, you get the gist of it, right? But this, this guy is retelling the story over and over, and the, the whole premise behind that, what is so alluring to us, what draws us in is that like, we all want that, that even if my mind starts to slip, you're gonna be that deeply in love with me and committed to me. Like, we want that, because here's the tension. The ones that we love the most could also hurt us the most. Have you found that? Have you lived that? The ones we love the most could also hurt us the most. And the people that we don't love, when they do hurtful things to us, it can hurt. But it's nothing like the wounds from someone that we love. Someone who we love can hurt us so much. And so we have to take that tension into where we're going now. We're starting a short series going through the book of Malachi. So if you have your copy of scripture with you, um, turn with me to Malachi chapter one as we're gonna walk through one of the minor prophets. This is the last book of the Old Testament. So right before the book of Matthew is Malachi, a short four chapters, Malachi, a minor prophet. So if you will turn there with me, we're gonna start at the very beginning in verse one of chapter one. So Malachi Chapter one, verse one. It starts and says this, a pronouncement, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. And so to, to kind of understand where this is going, as he starts this book, a Malachi is a minor prophet, and Malachi, the word in Hebrew actually means my messenger. And so we don't actually know, is Malachi the name of a prophet, or is Malachi a reference to a prophet functioning in this role? He's messenger, he is God's messenger. Um, either way, there was a prophet who was speaking these things on behalf of God. So the role of prophets in the Old Testament, um, they were to communicate some kind of a revelation from the divine, from God himself to the people of God. And so they are like a mouthpiece. God reveals something through a vision, a theophany of some sort. God would give them something to communicate then out to other people. And so they would do this regularly and it often looked and sounded very strange. But God would reveal these things to his people through the prophets, um, and ultimately, like, we like to think of prophets giving prophecy of, like, they're, they're foretelling the future, like, this is going to happen and stuff. And if you actually look in the, in the context of all of what the prophets recorded, that's actually a pretty small amount of what they're doing. Um, a lot of what they're doing is really just recalling, these are the terms of the covenant, that God has expressly given us a covenant that we are supposed to be his people, he's supposed to be our God, we're to follow these commands, he's promised us this, all this stuff. He's just supposed to remind people of that. And Like, hey, if we break those terms, expect this. He's already told us it's coming. And so Malachi is an Old Testament prophet. He is speaking on behalf of God. He's revealing something from the divine to the people, and largely he's going to do what the other prophets did as well. He's going to remind them of covenant terms. And yet this is God speaking through him. So this is profound, and yes, this is Old Testament, and yet it is just as relevant to us today as it was then. Um, There will be some contextual changes and so forth, but we have so much to learn from this. So I want us to spend the next few weeks walking through this together, listening to what God spoke through his servant Malachi. So let's get in verse two. As this is the message, this is the word of the Lord that has come to Israel through Malachi. It says, I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you ask, how have you loved us? Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. I turned his mountains into a wasteland. And gave his inheritance to the desert jackals. Though Edom says, we have been devastated, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of armies says this, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called a wicked country, and the people the Lord has cursed forever. Your own eyes will see this, and you yourselves will say, the Lord is great even beyond the borders of Israel gets kind of hard, like really quick. Like, whoa, where did all this come from? So verse two there is the key, I'm convinced, for the entirety of this book. So look at verse two. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you ask, how have you loved us? that, That idea, God saying through his servant, I have loved you. That should resound in our ears and in our hearts as God saying, I have loved you. Like, you need to be reminded, I have loved you. And you have to see that that's actually the key again. This is what he's going to be defending throughout this book because there's this response as the Israelites would say and so Malachi is saying it rhetorically for them like they would come back and be like, well, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? This is the tension of the book. And if you look at this in historical context, what's happened here, this is the last prophet before there's about 400 years of silence as we await the Messiah, the one who's been prophesied that's to come. And so as you enter into this place in history, Israel is now a reunification of Judah and Israel as they have gone into exile, the Babylonian exile. So what has happened? God made these covenants. He's like, look, I will bless you. You will be my people. Stick to the terms of the covenant. Follow the law. And if you don't, and you won't, by the way, then you'll be sent away into a foreign land. They will destroy your cities. The temple will be destroyed, all these things. So they've been warned, they've been warned, and they won't change their ways. And so ultimately, Babylon comes in and destroys the place. They wreck shop. They take the best and the brightest away, send them off. And so that has happened. They've gone into exile. And then do you know the story of Nehemiah? Ezra, some of these guys, and so they, after a long period of time, they get to come back, and they start to rebuild the wall, they rebuild the temple, and so here we find with Malachi, this is probably about 100 years into the time when Israel that had been exiled is coming back, and now no longer Judah and Israel, but now it's just Israel. Israel. Israel has been reunited, which is also a prophecy. They've come back, and they're in this land, and they're slowly rebuilding. The temple has been rebuilt at this point. The walls have been rebuilt. And so they've started to do some things, and yet now things are falling into, into disrepair again. Like, people are not pulling their own weight. People are really reluctant to give to the temple. The People are largely taking advantage of others. And so you come back, and it's like, okay, we learned our lesson, right, guys? So justice and mercy is going to prevail. But instead, now they look around and like, well, he's rich and he's poor and he's taking advantage of him. He has no chance. Like all this just injustice is slowly creeping back in. And so we're 100 years back into being resettled in Jerusalem and things are awful. There's injustice everywhere. And you've got to think, all these other prophets, like Ezekiel telling us about the Davidic kingdom, the height of, of Israel. When David sat on the throne and there was peace after a lot of bloodshed, but like everything was going great. His son, like the apex of all this, like great wealth, like even people from other nations are coming. It's like, wow, (laughs) you guys have got it going on. And so that's supposed to be restored. We're supposed to have a king on the throne from the line of David. Ezekiel told us this. Where's our king? Actually, the king that's reigning over this region, this is now a province of the Persian Empire. King Darius I is reigning now. So where's our Davidic king? Where's an Israelite on the throne? And what was Jeremiah talking about, this new covenant? You know, we're always breaking the covenant. We could never stick to the terms of the covenant. But Jeremiah was telling us, as we're going into exile, a new covenant's promised, guys. And this new covenant, he, like, it's going to be written on our hearts, like Ezekiel said, but this is a new covenant that he is going to fulfill every bit of it from start to finish. We will be his people, he will be our God, and we will not turn away because he'll write it on our hearts that he's going to own this through and through. And that's the covenant we need because we've shown over and over we can't keep the covenant on our end. So where's that covenant? What are all these promises? like? Where, where's the fulfillment of these prophecies? And now here's Malachi, this other prophet. He's like, I've got a word of the Lord for you. God says, Yeah, I've loved you. And I know what you're thinking. Look around. (laughs) How have you loved us? Is that your life right now? Or have you had seasons where you can resonate with that? You think like, I got a beloved church because Kevin wants us to always, even in the way we address each other, just be reminded God loves you. And like I read the scriptures, and it's over and over and over, showing me God loves me, God loves me. But then I look around my life, and I think, How have you loved me? If you loved me, would this be happening? Would that be happening? Would this relationship be like this? Would would this? Would this? Would this like all these things of how have you loved me? Do you love me, God? I really wanna question like the disillusioned audience thousands of years ago, we too can get there and think, where were you, God, in the promises you made? Has God failed? Are we just like this post-exilic second temple? Nah, I don't really know that this is actually going the way he said it would. Like, where are we at with this? And so, as we go forward, I want you to keep that in mind each week that there's this claim God has made, I love you. And how he's gonna walk through on what's actually gonna be different covenants he has made and show us how, yes, emphatically, yes, I have loved you and I will love you. And so the structure, um, the, the way that this book is written out is there are disputations, like there's arguments taking place and there's a consistent back and forth where God will make a claim or an accusation and then there'll be a rhetorical response where Malachi is like, I know what you're thinking, you say this, and then God will respond to that and, and bring clarity to that argument. And so as we go through that, the first one is presented here and it sounds very odd. He's like, I do love you. You remember Jacob? Like, wait, where are we going with Jacob? <laughs> How do we come back to that? You hate... Esau, like, oh, does, does God hate people? There's so much uncertainty in this. So let's read through that again. Um, the second part of verse two, it says, wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. I turned his mountains into a wasteland and gave his inheritance to the desert jackals. Though Edom says, we have been devastated, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of armies says this, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called a wicked country and the people the Lord has cursed forever. Your eyes will see this and you yourselves will say, the Lord is great even beyond the borders of Israel. And so this argument is given in response to Israel's questioning of God and it's pointing to this early covenant, a covenant with Jacob. This is Jacob who becomes known as Israel. He is renamed Israel by God. And Israel means to struggle or to wrestle with God. If you are a follower of Jesus... If you know God, you know this. There is this ongoing wrestle of learning to submit and love God and try to take myself off the throne that he deserves to be on in my heart and and I want that so much. And so he said, like Jacob was actually the founder of Israel as a nation. It's Jacob's descendants become the nation of Israel. And yet Jacob had a brother. He had a twin brother. who um, was born just before him. So Jacob is actually the younger brother. His older brother was Esau. And Esau means red. Um, Esau was born covered in hair. He's a little hairy man. And so very red. And, and so they become very different people. Esau becomes the father of another nation. And this was actually told to his parents that, hey, there are two nations in your womb. And so Jacob becomes Israel as a nation. Esau becomes Edom as a nation. And they're like constantly, there's this tension in the two boys as they grow up, but then in the nations as they grow up, the two are constantly kind of like at odds with each other over and over, actually under David's leadership. He kind of takes over Edom and all this stuff. And yet when the Israelites were coming in the promised land, Edom was a problem. So there's just the whole history is kind of back and forth and all this stuff. And yet here we come and God's like, hey, you question if I love you? I love Jacob, but I hated Esau. Have you watched this play out? You see how you're back here in Jerusalem wanting to rebuild, wanting things to be back to the glory days, so to speak? You know they want the same thing, right? And they may say they're going to, but just like I said through Obadiah and some of his other contemporaries, I'm gonna destroy it, so watch. Watch as I destroy it, because I love you. But I hated him, and so we still have that weird tension, like, God hated him? Like, what did he do to be hated? What did this big brother do? Um, and so, if you go back in Genesis, you see that his story is actually one of selfishness and disdain for the promises of the Lord. It's the covenant of God seems to be despised, as you see the actions and decisions of Esau. And so, Edom, the nation from Esau, is cursed. It falls out of the covenant relationship with God. And so as we look at this, verse four, it says, though Edom says we have been devastated, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of armies says this, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called a wicked country and the people the Lord has cursed forever. So again, Israel just returned with the same plan and desire to rebuild. Edom would be unsuccessful, whereas Israel could already see the temple has been reconstructed, guys. Do you not see the progress here? And so maybe you need to do that in your own life it's so easy to compare ourselves to others. And sometimes God is saying, hey, take your eyes off of them. I'll give you some assurance. They they may build. It may look great. It's going to destruction. But look in your life. Can you see some milestones? Can you see that God actually has been at work? Do you see the redemptive good that God is bringing about in the ruins? Like, the temple is standing when it once wasn't. Do you guys see, I am at work here. You've got to own some of this, but see that I am behind all of it. This is a beautiful assurance. When you look at verse five, he says, your own eyes will see this. You yourselves will say, the Lord is great even beyond the borders of Israel. I say, I Use your eyes. Look around. Stop fixating on the things that seem like destruction. Open your eyes to see. You have so much to be thankful for. You have so much to rejoice in the Lord for. And that's so kind of God. To see that he's saying, see proof as Edom is destroyed. Watch this play out. I'll give you this assurance. Or see proof in the reconstruction of the temple. And ultimately what he's saying is, external evidence is often really helpful in times of faith crisis. When your faith is in crisis and you're questioning God, it is often very good to look around for some external evidence. And we have so much to look at if we're willing to open our eyes and see. So open your eyes and see that. But we have to see the assurance of this original argument in its earliest form. He's building this argument based off of this covenant with Jacob. Do you know the story of Jacob? Do you know what would flood the minds of the Israelites as they hear Malachi say this? As they think, yep, we are Israel, the descendants, the nation of Jacob who was named Israel. If you've read through the story of scriptures, like every time I go through it, there's one guy who stands out above all that I despise most. You want to know who it is? Jacob. Every time I read it, so this guy is born of a promise um, because his mom's not giving birth, she's getting a little bit old, and today's kind of culture, it'd be like, no, you're like way too old to be having kids. But her husband, Isaac, he, he's the son of Abraham who received all these promises. Like, your seed is gonna bless the nations. And so Isaac comes down and then Isaac's like, hey, honey, you're not having kids. And so Isaac prays to God. God hears his prayer. And so his wife conceives and she has two nations present in a room, as she's told prophetically. And so Jacob is one and Esau is one. These twins in the womb, they come out. Esau comes out first. He comes out first. He's red and hairy. It's weird, but he gets his name. And so he comes out, but as he comes out, Jacob is holding on to his heel. He's holding on to his heel, and so they name Jacob Jacob because he's grasping the heel. And that's just a beautiful picture of what the rest of his life is going to look like. You know, I'm just going to have to play off of your strength, man. <laughs> just tagging along here to take advantage of you and what you've got and everything. So he starts to grow up, and he's kind of like this more, much, much more domesticated shepherder guy who likes to hang around the house. His mom loves him dearly. We don't know how much of that is because of the prophecy she's given, but um, Esau, meanwhile, he's a hunter. He's out like man's man. He's going out. He's killing things, coming home bloody because he's already red and hairy, and so he's back. And there comes a point when, as the oldest son he should be the recipient of the covenant blessing that God has made to Abraham, passed to Isaac, and now should be coming to this generation. As the oldest son, he should be the one receiving the greater inheritance. And so he knows his inheritance that's to come. The wealth that has amassed over generations now is a lot. And yet he comes home so hungry one day, and he's so selfish and melodramatic about it. He's like, I'm gonna die, I'm so hungry, I'm starving to death, literally Jacob, you're such a good cook, man. You sit at home watching Food Network all the time with mom. It's cool. Just make me something good. Give me one of those soups, man. You do such a good job. And Jacob is like, I take advantage of this situation. You're that hungry? It's going to cost you. I need your birthright. I get the inheritance of the eldest son. And Esau is so consumed with himself and his immediate need that he's like, I'm going to die anyways. Give it to me. You can have it. And in doing that, he's actually rejected the covenant of God. He's given away the promise of God. Not trusting God to provide. And instead say, I I need that right now. The immediacy of now. Again, we can get there. We can't see past what is just right now hurting. So Jacob takes advantage of him, deceives him into giving his birthright. Like, you're having a conversation. I talk to my kids about this all the time. Like, you're not hurting that bad if you can keep talking to me. (laughs) Maybe that's harsh. But, like, you gotta see, like, you're clearly not literally dying if you can have this conversation to ask for soup. And so he does this. And then later, as Isaac is dying, and he's, like, his sight is terrible, and so, um, again, hairy brother, Jacob develops this plan with schemes with mom, and he covers himself in animal fur to feel like his brother. And he comes in as Isaac is dying, and he's like, I need your final blessing. And I'm Esau, by the way. I'm like, no, you're Jacob. And Isaac is going back and forth, like, you don't sound like Esau, but oh, I feel, you feel like Esau, you hairy little thing, and all this stuff. And so he convinces them, he deceives them, and he receives the blessing at the end of Isaac's life. And he goes off and there's kind of this beautiful moment where his uncle, like it runs in the family, his uncle deceives him and gives him the wrong wife after seven years of working for him then he has to work for another time. But all the while he's amassing wealth and it's just so frustrating because like everywhere he goes, he's blessed. He's blessed. Jacob is blessed. The deceiver is blessed. He's like, why? The guy who comes out grasping the heel of the guy who works hard and all this stuff and like he's got his faults but like I so much more resonate with Esau. Like, come on. And yet Jacob is blessed over and over and over. He's accumulating more and more wealth. They come back together. They're actually reconciled. Brothers are reconciled. And they kind of go different ways because there's all this stuff. But in the midst of that, when Jacob is convinced that his brother's coming, we've heard he's coming with 400 men. He's gonna kill me. He's always been able to beat me. <laughs> like, he's just a better fighter. And, and he's like, let me send half of my stuff away so that if they come, then like, we'll keep half of it. And then there comes a little bit later point when he's like, okay, family, like everybody, you guys go over there and I'll wait to cross. And you have to wonder like, did he do that? Because he's that much of a coward. Now all of my family is out. I'm not there to protect them. I'm like the last thing. So if he's coming get through all of that before you get to me. And then it says, like as, as the day is growing old, like suddenly there's a man coming across. And Jacob, you know, Jacob's gotta be thinking, oh, that's Esau. <laughs> he gets into a fighting stance, like, oh, it's going down, this is not gonna be good for me, and they wrestle. And there comes a point at which Jacob realizes, this is not my brother, this is the Lord. And so he just clings to him and the Lord's like, you know, I've had enough. Like, Daylight's coming. Bam! And he punches them essentially in the junk. Like, no joke, to dislocate his hip and the, and the Jews would not eat this particular meat, but to do that kind of a forceful thing means he actually would have hit him in the groin. Which is so ironic that the blessing of the nations, meaning through his seed, is necessary to come from them, and yet that is the place in which God strikes him. Again, to say, None of it by your own effort. None of it by your own merit. None of the blessing in your life because of what you deserve. Every last bit of it is grace. And suddenly I realized the reason I hate this guy so much is because that is me. That I deserve all of the wrath and judgment that I am pouring out as I read this page on this guy. But that is me. And God comes to me in grace and says, you don't deserve this at all. I love you and I will bless you. You will be mine. You are my beloved. And so when Israel is hearing Malachi say, the Lord says, I have loved you. And you say, how have you loved us? And the Lord says, Jacob, you remember that? You remember how you became my people? Entirely by grace. You could never earn your way into this. You don't deserve this, but I love you in grace. I love you, and you are mine. Do you see the way it's playing out for others that are not mine? Do you see the way I am blessing you? I've done so much for you. You are mine. This is the gospel, this is Jesus, God the Son, coming for us, living a sinless life, to die a sinner's death in our place, nailed to a cross so that we would not have to face the wrath of God. And he says, turn from your sin. Admit you are a sinner, and you must turn from that. But believe, he has paid the price. There is forgiveness from God, because God himself has absorbed the very wrath of God. So his justice is met, but his mercy endures. His love's extended to us. There's forgiveness and everlasting life. So put your faith in him and say, I'm like Jacob, I don't belong to be here. I don't earn to be here, and yet you say, I belong, I am here, I am yours, because you love me in grace. You have shown me that on a cross, the most glorious way possible. In your own death, you love me. Who am I to ask, How have you loved me? I know you love me, I know I am yours. You have called me your own. So trust Him believe he lived he died and he rose again and that was to show you he loves you to make you his own and so each week i will conclude with this it's a short book um, but you have to see how all the arguments ultimately culminate in one huge crescendo of a response as you're looking around at life like how does this make sense you say you love me i i like i'm experiencing this and all this stuff and so okay i get it like i was called here by grace i didn't i never deserved to be yours i am yours And I still live with the tension of like all this injustice around all the hurt, the pain, the way that I'm trying to honor you and yet it doesn't seem to be going well for me. All the the tensions of life and following Jesus and Jesus promised in this world, you will have trouble. It hated me, it will hate you too. So as you encounter all of that here as we go to the conclusion in chapter three starting in verse 13, your words against me are harsh says the Lord as they're consistently questioning him. Yet you ask, what have we spoken against you? You have said, it is useless to serve God. What have we gained by keeping his requirements and walking mournfully before the Lord of armies? So now we consider the arrogant to be fortunate. Not only do those who commit wickedness prosper, they even test God and escape. Do you hear that? Do you feel that? I'm trying to live for the Lord and I look at how my life is going And I see those who are just in blatant rebellion against God. And their life seems to be going so much better. And God's saying, I hear that. I get that. So look at verse 16. At that time, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord took notice and listened. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared the Lord and had high regard for his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of armies. My own possession on the day I'm preparing. I will have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his son who serves him. So you will again see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. For look, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of Armies not leaving them root or branches. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. You will trample the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day I'm preparing, says the Lord of armies. Who is God now? Consistently referenced as the Lord of armies. The one who fights for us. And he says, you are mine. And a day is coming when I will make all of this right. The injustice you see now will be made right. The pain that you endure now for the sake of my name. Oh, will be turned into great bliss. Eternal delight. You will be repaid. Every one of us will be repaid. That means for our wickedness or for our Righteousness. And we must know we have no righteousness of our own. So will you receive the Lord's righteousness? And on that day, to know that our wickedness has been paid for, has been atoned for, and now as we live a life of this calling to holiness, that we are to walk in the ways of the Lord as his own people, there's ongoing forgiveness for us, but there's a real call to holiness. You're now to live and do these good works for the glory of God. A holy nation, a royal priesthood, to proclaim his glory. To proclaim God's glory, not our own. And yet there are so many that still live for their own glory. And he is saying, look, the day is coming when the Lord will come back. Jesus is coming back and he's coming back with a sword coming out of his mouth, fire in his eyes. He will speak and it will sound like thousands of waterfalls falling around us. And he has some kind of weird tattoo thing like King of Kings and Lord of Lords along his thigh." And he comes on this horse and he will absolutely decimate his enemies. Are you ready for that day? And Christian, we look forward to that day and we say with the spirit, come Lord Jesus, come. He loves us and he's coming back for us. And so we can get through all of today with all of its insanity, looking at that day. He's gonna make it all right. God, God, Honors his covenants? The answer is yes. He really loves us. Will you pray with me? God, thank you that you love us this much. That you would make a covenant with us, like Jeremiah foretold, and and the Israelites with Malachi were wondering where it was. God, we thank you that we can look back to that and see Jesus instituting that covenant a covenant where you would pay the whole cost, that you would ensure that we do not fall from that. We do not fail in that because it is entirely by your power. I thank you that we are yours, that you want us, that you desire us. It's amazing. We love you. We desire you, God. Would you come more and more, Spirit, come. Be with us now as we worship you. We give you the glory and we look forward to the day that you come back, Jesus. That every person will see you visibly return and there will be judgment. I thank you. We don't have to fear that day, but instead we long for it because you are gracious. You have called us Israel that we can wrestle with you. Or you prevail and you call us, her, call us your own and you bless us. Thank you, God. I love you. And praise you in Jesus' name.